So I think the big question for Singapore's future is, can it really survive and do well as a, a global city, which is at the same time a city-state, in a world which is going to look quite different and in many ways more dangerous and divided than it has done in the last half century? Uh, we're in a new phase of deglobalization around the world. There is a lot of new protectionism in the pipeline. What's most dangerous about it is that it's led by the big powers, by the United States, by China, and I think by an increasingly inward-looking EU, of course, without, without Great Britain. China as a rising mercantilist power is a threat, one has to face it realistically. There are genuine national security concerns. Hello, Razin. Hello, Petri. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's midsummer here in Tallinn, so quiet. How is the summer in the city, Singapore? Uh, well, we're going through a few rainy days. It's been raining today and it's pretty overcast. Uh, this is normally a a uh, pretty hot time of the year, so it's the, the rain has uh, cooled it down a bit. Uh, but a taxi driver once told me that in Singapore there are three seasons, hot, hotter, hottest. That's it. How big is the difference between those? Not much. <laughs> it's between 30 and 35 degrees, or <laughs> thereabouts. So what is fun and cool in Singapore? I haven't been there for a while. Um... Well, at the moment, nothing, of course, but that's true everywhere or most places around the world. Um, uh, well, Singapore has a reputation for being uh, straight-laced, uh, which is true. Uh, it's a controlled society. It's not a place where people generally go wild. Um, but I'd say since the late 1990s, uh, the government has tried to uh, open up Singapore more and uh, allow people to let their hair down, but in in a controlled, well-behaved way, in a very Singaporean way. Uh, so there is much more of a restaurant scene, an art scene, uh, even a clubbing scene, uh, a bar scene. Uh, than there than there used to be. Um, I, I I'd say you know Singapore has global city characteristics. Um, there there aren't that many genuine global cities around the world um, where you have uh, a confluence of ideas and activities from different continents, not just one continent. Um, but I think Singapore is in that small basket alongside London, New York, uh, perhaps Dubai, um, and Hong Kong. Um, and it's become more pronounced in Singapore. Uh, I, I first came to Singapore in the year 2000. So I have 20 years of experience uh, the first 10 years visiting Singapore and the last uh, almost nine years living here. 
Um, and it has become much more of a global city resembling a place like London uh, much more than it was when I first came here. Uh, so I hear many languages spoken on the street. I can go to restaurants serving cuisines from around the world. Um, the airport has uh, excellent connectivity in normal times. It's regularly voted the best airport in the world, uh, and so on. Um, I teach at a university with lots of uh, students from other parts of Asia in particular. Uh, English is the working language. I don't speak Chinese. I don't need to to function in Singapore like most expats here. I hardly speak a word of Chinese. Um, so there's all that in Singapore, which uh, certainly makes it convenient. Uh, also makes it very expensive. Um, uh, what's unique about Singapore, compared with the other cities I mentioned, is that, um, as some people like to say in Singapore, it's a CSI. It's a city, it's a state, and it's an island all in one. Um, so it, uh, it still feels a little strange living in Singapore, because it's not as if you live in a big bustling city but then can take a car or a train or a bus to another city or the countryside or a small town in the same country. Uh, to leave Singapore, either you have to go across one of two bridges to Malaysia, uh, another country, so you have to show your passport, or you take a flight from the airport to another country and show your passport again. Uh, so it's perhaps the only real city-state left in the world, uh, a city-state of significant size. Uh, in that sense, it's a real uh, vestige of a world uh, which was run by city-states several centuries ago. What do you think of Singapore's future? Um I think, you know, Singaporeans have always been anxious about the future because this place is so small and vulnerable. Uh, even when it was a British colony, um, when the world was doing badly during world wars and during the depression in the 1930s, I think... Uh, there were existential questions. Will we survive? Um, and that was also true after the Second World War. Would Singapore survive in a world of more powerful, bigger nation states? Uh, it seemed to be really existential in the mid-1960s when Singapore was kicked out of Malaysia left on its own. Um, so because it's so small and it makes its living from the world, uh, trade is 400% or thereabouts of GDP. Uh, multinationals account for a big chunk of uh, 
industrial employment in particular in Singapore and a lot of services employment. Uh, its lifeblood is trading with the rest of the world and now as a global hub for all sorts of services activities, starting with financial services. Uh, Singapore really lives and breathes international trade, investment, capital and people uh, from around the world. Uh, and when, when the world economy is doing well, when big places, small places, medium places around the world are liberalizing, when we have intense globalization, then Singapore does disproportionately well uh, because it's, it's very well positioned for all of that. But when we move into a different phase or a different era, uh, one where um, there's more conflict in the world geopolitically, uh, where nations are looking more inward, where they engage in more protectionism, um, when the world moves into a deglobalization phase, as it were, a place like Singapore tends to do disproportionately badly because it is so dependent on the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, the, the EU average trade to GDP is probably, uh, I guess, 30 to 40 percent, uh, maybe something similar or less in the United States. In Singapore, it's more than 10 times that uh, number. Um, so I think with the way the world has been moving in recent years, uh, and added to that, this increasing conflict in the region between the United States and China, it makes the government here jittery and it makes people anxious because they, they wonder about the, you know, the existence um, and viability of a place like this in a more dangerous, fractured world. Um, and I suppose those fears are heightened at a time like this, when uh, you know, the world has closed up shop due to this coronavirus pandemic, uh, we had an effective lockdown in Singapore for 73 days. It only ended last Friday. Um, and we still have comprehensive travel restrictions. Uh, so, you know, GDP will shrink here by probably something close to 10%. Um, so, yes, I think the big question for Singapore's future is can it really survive and do well as a, a global city which is at the same time a city-state? Um, in a world which is going to look quite different and in many ways more dangerous and divided, than it has done 
in the last half century? Uh, that's the big question. Can you recommend it to someone who is having maybe their own company and they, they need presence into Asia? Now, Hong Kong is basically out of the question and there really isn't that many regional headquarters, places to, to put your company. Is it worthwhile to, to still yeah, consider? Yes. Things? Notwithstanding um, all the worries and anxieties I mentioned, I think the answer is still yes. Um, uh, even without bringing Hong Kong into the equation, um, why? Because uh, growth rates are still much higher in this part of the world than they are in the Old West or most parts of the Old West. Um, Singapore, as I mentioned, it's not just a global hub, but it's a regional hub. Uh, Hong Kong and Singapore are the main destinations for multinationals, uh, for regional headquarters operations. Um, if you look at these economic indexes, uh, Singapore takes pride in uh, coming at the top or close to the top of most of them. It's regularly ranked number one or number two, at the least in the top five in the Doing Business Index, um, uh, the Economic Freedom Index, the World Bank's Logistics Performance Index, uh, and so on. Um, and um, it's not hype, it's, it's, it's true. Uh, I think it, it hits you when you come here as a visitor. As soon as you arrive at the airport, you get the impression, yes, this is probably one of the best airports in the world. It takes very little time to disembark from your plane to check into your hotel downtown. Uh, I actually timed it once. I think the fastest I did it from my apartment on the West Coast to um, actually checking in um, uh, at the airport on the at the other end of the East Coast was 25 minutes. Um, That's fast. That's pretty close to what you can do in Tallinn as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's rather like that. Um, crime is very low in Singapore. Uh, so, you know, I, I will, on the odd occasion, uh, when I'm in the back of a cab or passing by some building, see a, a big blue sign put up by the police um, reporting a crime incident in big red letters. And it's usually about uh, a bicycle being stolen or maybe someone's wallet being lost uh, or maybe some some scam. But I've never seen one about a murder or a rape or something like that. Um, uh, it's one of the few urban places on earth, I guess, where... Even a lot of women will feel reasonably safe walking alone uh, late at night. Um, uh, 
doing business here is compared with most of the rest of the world very straightforward you can set up your business in a matter of of hours um most things are digitized online uh you can clear your goods from the port very quickly um government actually works uh pretty well in singapore uh so most public services i encounter in singapore are quick and smooth uh, the tax system is very simple and efficient um i mean i'm a i suppose a representative example uh middle class professional um expat uh about 10% of my gross income goes on tax uh and i don't have to fill out a tax form uh it's all done by my employer anything i earn outside singapore uh which is legal i can remit to singapore without paying tax on it uh so there are i mean there are also good international schools expensive ones there's good healthcare uh public transport is very good uh in other words it's a it's a city that really works very well in the basic even the sophisticated functional sense um and it's a very good platform for traveling and doing business uh around the wider asia it's also geographically very well located uh it's roughly halfway between india and china so from here it's uh a 3 to 4 hour flight to the main destinations in india uh it's a 6 hour flight to beijing it's a 3 hour flight to hong kong maybe a 4 4 and a half hour flight to shanghai a uh, 6 and a half to 7 hour flight to uh tokyo um and uh, perth is five or six hours away sydney and melbourne are eight plus hours away uh so that makes the the international connectivity uh very very good uh so th- those are all the attributes of singapore and uh, to sum that up i think singapore's main selling point um to attract business and people from around the world is uh stability predictability clarity and also a certain strategic sense um the same government has been in power since 1959 uh winning every election by a huge margin that is a long time yes um uh, they got a real fright in 2010 when i think they only got 60% of the vote and only got 81 out of 87 seats in parliament um so it's a controlled democracy it's not uh an identikit western style liberal democracy uh democracy is certainly more liberal in 
South Korea and Taiwan, even in Japan. Um, but that longevity, that continuity of government uh, enables it to think and plan for the longer term. It ha- in other words, it has a luxury very few other governments in the world have. Um, of course, it was led by one extraordinary character for decades, Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, as one person described him, he was uh, a political superman, albeit only in charge of a metropolis. Uh, his legacy lives on in Singapore, and he built the institutions to outlive him. Um, and I think in, you know, in a world that is becoming more unpredictable and more unstable, that Singapore premium of uh, stability, predictability, and openness um, is at least as valuable as it has been in the last few decades. I think that's its main, that remains its main selling point. What you just told us is, sounds like uh, almost like a paid advertisement from the well, government. So it's not paradise. Um, <laughs> nowhere in the world is paradise. Um, but you know, if if we want to probe Singapore's disadvantages, its weak points, then I would think of the following. Um, from a liberal standpoint, Singapore is not exactly liberal. Uh, it may be a little bit more liberal than it used to be, but it still has a paternalistic, uh, controlling, even nanny state features, uh, and a lot of conformism in the population. Uh, it's a one of the most open economies on earth, but at the same time, it's not, I'd say, an open society in the Western sense. Uh, as I said before, it's a controlled democracy. Uh, there are lots of things enshrined in law uh, and many things in practice, formal and informal practice, that don't conform to Western-style liberalism. Restrictions on the freedom of speech, on the freedom of assembly. Um, There's a lot of self-censorship still in Singapore. Uh, The mainstream media is highly controlled. Um, the domestic economy is dominated by government-owned companies. Uh, the government, in one sense, is um, a Western classical liberal's dream. Low taxes, uh, little red tape, uh, free trade, for example. But in another sense, it's an industrial policy interventionist's dream. The government owns lots of companies. 
um, including Singapore Airlines, the national carrier, uh, and the Port Services Authority, uh, the main taxi company, uh, one of the main banks, uh, and many, many other things besides. Uh, the government-linked companies dominate the local stock market. Um, the government intervenes in all sorts of micro ways. Uh, and over the decades, the governing elite here has engineered Singapore um, and engineered a largely conformist local population. One reason, perhaps, why Singapore still relies so much on importing foreigners. Um, and that translates into a society and an economy, an economy without much genuine innovation. And I think this is the really big difference between, say, New York and London and other cities I can think of in the West. Or the kind of subcultures you're familiar with in, in Tallinn on the one hand and Singapore on the other hand. Um, Singapore is very good at imitating what's already been done in the West and then copying in a very sophisticated way to do even better than the West. But what you don't find in Singapore or find little of in Singapore is genuine innovation in the Schumpeterian sense. There's very little creative destruction in Singapore. Uh, there is a startup culture, but even that is government supported. Um, but it's not the kind of startup culture that you would associate with Silicon Valley or uh, Herzliya uh, in Tel Aviv, places like that. Um, this is still uh, a society and an economy that's dominated by big companies, by big multinationals and by big domestic companies, most of them owned by the government. So it's an excellent place to put a um, regional headquarters, but you know, if you want to disrupt the market, that's probably not the best place to do that. Yeah. So it, it's, I think, quite common to find you know, your usual list of Western multinationals with their regional headquarters operations here. Uh, but And those are coordinating functions. But it's, it's rarer to come across those same companies with really high-value R&D, engineering things going on, design and engineering things going on in Singapore. Those they will keep in, in, their, head, in, 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 in their home markets uh, or in global innovation hubs, so to speak. Uh, not much of that in Singapore. So you're saying that creative people probably would not uh, thrive in, in Singapore environment in the sense that maybe the London and other places can provide? I think, you know, creative types, 
can still probably thrive depending on the niche? I think the answer is it depends very much on the niche. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're in, if you're say in fintech uh, and you're not an already big company, uh, then Singapore might well be the place to be because uh, Singapore is becoming the Asian hub for for fintech. Um, but in another sense, you're right. Um, if you're comfortable, uh, also in a lifestyle sense, with a place like Silicon Valley or Tel Aviv uh, or some little pockets in, in Europe, London, uh, then you might find Singapore a bit of an anticlimax. Maybe still a bit too, bit too straight-laced, a bit too conformist, um, and with informal barriers to entering and breaking through, as it were. Um, now we didn't. I mean, so far we haven't talked about Hong Kong, um, but now may be the time to bring Hong Kong into the picture. And also as an addition to the Hong Kong, what happened just uh, within the 24 hours was that U.S. was pretty much closing its borders for, uh, you know, immigrants as well. No visas allowed. Yeah. So you've been focusing on trade policies and you, you're expert on the field. Is that, you know, that's, I think that's an also an interesting aspect. We can obviously talk about Hong Kong, but I think these are kind of related things, you know, no, it's it's a global world, and uh, it seems to be that a lot of the countries are closing down. Sure, um, I think we're you know we're in a new phase of deglobalization around the world. Um, that actually started before this pandemic. Um, I think after the GFC, liberalization around the world stalled in some places went into uh, a kind of creeping reversal. And then when President Trump took office, we saw the United States uh, retreating into protection, aimed at China in the first instance, but also aimed at others. Uh, we've seen much more Chinese protectionism, and we've seen other countries like India and Indonesia engaging in copycatting protectionism. So all of that was in train before this pandemic. Uh, and trade was suffering. And it was having detrimental effects on, on economic growth, on the global economy. And then this pandemic struck when, perforce, countries shut down, uh, which also meant shutting down their borders. Uh, to the flow of goods, capital, uh, and people. And that's the current situation. Um, and of course, we've seen a lot of new interventions, uh, governments trying to prop up their economies while in lockdown. Uh, and I think the, the portents aren't good. Um, I think the trend is 
that protectionism is accelerating around the world, starting from before this pandemic crisis. We've seen more of it during the crisis. For example, um, countries, governments imposing export bans on medical equipment, talking about manufacturing uh, critical medical equipment at home rather than importing equipment, uh, talking about protecting strategic industries from China and others, uh, actually uh, dishing out a huge additional amount of subsidies. Um, and the unspoken assumption is that those, those subsidies are basically for production and employment at home at the expense of production and employment abroad. They have a home production bias. Uh, so many of them will probably end up as being trade discriminating. So all of this is happening now, and many of these interventions will likely stick. Some might be reversed, hopefully, but some will have staying power, and they will last into the medium term, uh, meaning they will last beyond the time when a vaccine is found and we look back on this pandemic as something that happened the day before yesterday. Uh, so I, I think there is a lot of new protectionism in the pipeline. Uh, what's most dangerous about it is that it's led by the big powers, by the United States, by China, and I think by an increasingly inward-looking EU, an EU now, of course, without, without Great Britain. Um, and that bodes ill all around. Uh, more protectionism will mean lower levels of growth coming out of the pandemic. It'll mean, in the longer term, lower levels of productivity which of course translates into fewer jobs and jobs that are not as valuable. Uh, lower growth will mean more political and social tensions within countries and between countries. Um, and it will contribute to making the geopolitical environment even more unstable than it is. Uh, so I think all those signs are, are worrying uh, for everywhere around the world, from places that are extremely dependent on the external world, like Singapore, to big economies like the United States and Europe that, in one sense, are more self-contained. They rely more on activities going on domestically, but are still very much uh, intertwined with the rest of the world. And that goes for China as well. So what is the way out of this? Um, also, another thing what I've been thinking is that it seems that there's a lot of uh, populism, there's a lot of uh, reactionism, there's also short-term thinking involved in all of this geopolitical situation around the world. What is the way out of this thing? There's no easy answer to, to that one. Um, you know, I'm an old-fashioned classical liberal. 
I, I believe in fairly limited but still effective government. I believe in markets. I believe in free trade, all of those things. And I could repeat that mantra, uh, but just repeating it and not going further would just be lazy, wishful thinking. Uh, one has to be realistic as well. Um, and a classic realist is someone who starts by taking the world as it is rather than as one wishes it to be and then tries to improve on that rather than imagining a perfect world and says, we must get there. That's of no use to anyone. I mean, the complicated answer I would give taking a stab at your question, would be to say, uh, I think it's incumbent on decision makers of a liberal mind um, and individuals, opinion formers who want to influence policy to, I suppose the first injunction is to say, first do no harm, to advocate not making matters worse by uh, engaging in ill-advised uh, interventions. Uh, and that probably starts with uh, protectionism. Um, uh, domestically, you know, these are emergency times, so I, I, you know, I think there is a case for extra government intervention that is temporary on the fiscal side, on the monetary side, uh, wage subsidies, uh, corporate subsidies, and so on. Um, but I think the challenge is to find ways, first to do them in the least inefficient way possible, the most non-discriminatory way possible, and second to keep them time-limited. Uh, and to reverse them uh, so that uh, regulation doesn't get in the way of, of recovery. Um, that's the simplest way I can, I can put it. The answer is more complicated than that, of course. Um, I, I think um, one has to be pragmatic about this. Um, I, I, I don't have much time for really ideological doctrinaire libertarians who say this crisis is hyped, we don't need these lockdowns, we should allow people their freedom and to take the risk of getting infected, but that's their core, and keep economies going. I think that's just reckless, uh, not just from a public health standpoint, but from an economic standpoint. Um, I, I think it's important to combat the kind of populism that we've seen in the West so far. Um, I don't think laissez-faire, pure laissez-faire, is the way to combat it. I think one has to be pragmatic about thinking of, of interventions that would 
repair the social fabric um, while keeping markets open and functioning and without making government too big and too uh, too too intrusive. Um, and on the international front, um, I think it's it's important that we do have uh, leadership and cooperation to keep markets open, to provide public goods, as it were, to keep uh, the world economy open. Um, and that's really difficult because the the country that we expected to take the lead in that, the United States, has certainly not been leading or has been leading in the wrong direction under Donald Trump. It is more inward-looking and populist itself. That infects foreign policy, including and trade policy. Some of those things are not likely to change with a Biden presidency. Uh it's important to look to build coalitions of the like-minded, broadly speaking, around the world to keep the world economy open and also to prevent international political tension from escalating into, well, violence and, and war. Um, uh, there's a role, I think, for small countries and so-called middle powers including places like Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, uh, to push that agenda, uh, to try and nudge the Americans and the Europeans to be more outward-looking and globally constructive, um, and to, to face the new dangers coming out of China. Um, uh, I suppose there was a time, maybe 10 or say 15 or 20 years ago, when I was, I think, more sanguine about China. I took the standard liberal position that we should remain fully open to China and that with globalization, China itself would become progressively more open um, and more of a stakeholder, to use Robert Zellick's term, in the international system than a threat to a liberal order. But what we've seen clearly, especially in the last decade, is China moving in the opposite direction. And here again, I, I well, has it has it always been moving that direction? That it just hasn't been that obvious. Um, is it just like a misjudgment from the Western side? Yeah, I think there's a bit of all of that in the mix. Um, yes, I think with hindsight, there was too much naivety in the West that because China was genuinely opening up in the economic sense to the world uh, from the late 70s until I'd say about 15 years ago uh, and opening up in other ways as well including you know, through the movement of people lots of Chinese students abroad for example Western business people in China uh, not to mention, of course, big Western investment in China, that it would not just keep up that liberalizing momentum economically, but that would spill over into 
politics and society as well, however gradually. And that turned out to be naive and wrong uh, because China has been moving in the opposite direction on on all fronts. Um, so I, I think one thing I'd say, it, 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 there have been different phases. I think one can definitely point to a long opening up phase in China from 1978 until, say, the global financial crisis, you know, with the interruption of the Tiananmen incident. So the late 80s, early 90s, there was, if you like, a blip on the screen. But economically, China was opening up for, the, for that period. And then from the GFC onwards, it's become more protectionist economically. And the authoritarian screws politically have been tightened. But another way of answering that question would be to say that, of course, China has remained an authoritarian political system throughout. That hasn't changed. And yes, in the West, I think we've been too naive about that right the way through. Uh, so there was a while when there was a kind of equilibrium between economic opening up and political authoritarianism. Uh, the state remained a one-party state and China continued to have market Leninism, so-called. And as we've seen under Xi Jinping, that equilibrium has been upset. Uh, it's become a more state interventionist economy. It's become more protectionist. And it's become more politically authoritarian and culturally controlled at the same time. Um, I mean, there was a view maybe about 10 years ago that you could actually have a happy combination of Mao and markets. Well, we know now that that's, that's wrong. Uh, we've seen more Mao politically, but more restricted markets at the same time. And of course, the difference this makes to the world is the size of China. Now, it's a multiple size economically, of course, what it was decades ago. The economy has probably doubled in size uh, over the last decade. Uh, given growth rates in China, uh, it's been doubling size in size at least once a decade. And at purchasing power, it's the biggest economy in the world. So when these things are happening, uh, more state intervention in the economy, more political control domestically, with the burgeoning size of China, that power gets projected abroad, which is precisely what we're seeing uh, in the last decade with a much more assertive China regionally and and globally. And that upsets the geopolitical apple cart. China has been quite um, active in Africa for a long time, securing resources. They're investing in a lot of different infrastructure uh, projects. And do you see that there's 
is it, is it really planned strategic thing to start to become a, you know global dominant power and buying influence and also securing resources is that really like a long-term view there that we should also be really cautious about it yes uh, it's clearly part of the uh, Chinese leadership's uh, strategy um, so China investing in Africa and in other parts of the world it's not just Africa it's Latin America uh, and of course the countries that are covered by this Belt and Road Initiative which is a very broad framework to accommodate all sorts of different projects um, it's part of securing natural resources for a huge economy that is uh, resource scarce, that needs to import ever more resources and doesn't want to rely on the U.S. Navy for the safe passage of those resources across the seas. Um, at the same time, it's really a bundle of lots of opportunistic projects here and there. Um, there's a heavy emphasis on infrastructure, which is not surprising. Um, a hard authoritarian state uh, during a fast period of growth, of catch-up growth, is usually in the business of building lots and lots of infrastructure. Uh, That's the easiest way to go, get things done. You, uh, you do it through a controlled and repressed financial system uh, and your philosophy, as it were, is you build and they will come. So China is doing abroad uh, what it's been used to doing at home during its three-plus decades of catch-up growth with highly subsidized, uh, uh, essentially with created money domestically, um, and uh, it's of course using that those tools not just as a commercial proposition, the commercial proposition is there, but also as a political stroke geopolitical proposition to cement influence and overriding influence in the countries where these projects take, take place. So it's usually state-owned companies financed by policy banks at home that do the job, often with uh, Chinese labor um, and the government at the other end assumes the debt um, and you have a kind of dependency relationship created uh, now I think the actual results on the ground are very mixed some of these projects do actually work uh, and they materialize far quicker than alternative projects from Western donors and from international organizations like the World Bank and the regional development banks. Um, but many of these projects also involve lots of corruption. Uh, they operate behind a veil of secrecy. They involve the co-option of local political and commercial elites. Um, and 
helped China recreate in the 21st century the kind of tributary system they used to have. So this is, it's, it's in the mind of China, the minds of Chinese strategists, and certainly in the policy conversation, that what China is doing today is reminiscent of the kind of tributary system the Middle Kingdom had in previous centuries. And I would translate that into China becoming a classic mercantilist power. Um, and I think this is the big difference between China now and its ambitions for leadership abroad and U.S. leadership during the Pax Americana. Of course, the Americans have thrown their weight about unilaterally and bilaterally. Of course, there's been a lot of power politics involved. But I think the great gift of post-1945 American leadership has been to provide the public goods for international order, starting with global peace, extending to uh, free-ish trade and capital flows around the world, and doing that by essentially taking the lead in organizing concerts of cooperation, uh, which have found expression in the WTO, for example, in multilateral trade rules and in other organizations. So the, the, I think the, the legacy of U.S. power at its best was to actually provide the rules for markets to work around the world, um, uh, involving countries with very different, diverse, contrasting, and conflicting political systems and societies. Now, China, as I see it, is emerging to be a very different kind of power. And as I said, a classic mercantilist power. So my, my, my comparison would be with, of China today, be less with the old Soviet Union. There's talk of a, a new Cold War. So one thinks of the old Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union. I think that's misleading in one sense. The Soviet Union was a totalitarian command economy, sealed off from the market economies of the world. China is not a totalitarian political system. It used to be under Mao. It went from being totalitarian to being authoritarian, quite different. And of course, it became a much more marketized economy and an economy that became much more globally integrated. So very different from the old Soviet Union. I think the similarity perhaps is more with Japan and Germany in the late 19th century and in the first half of the 20th century, because Japan and Germany as rising powers were authoritarian, and increasingly so, but not totalitarian. They had market economies, but market economies with an increasing amount of state intervention and direction. And that's pretty much the kind of mix we're seeing in China today. Uh, the big difference, perhaps, is that 
you know, China, in terms of its economic weight in the world, is turning out to be bigger, more uh, decisive than Germany was or Japan was. Um, uh, except perhaps during you know, during during the Second World War. Um, so, you know, a mercantilist power is not so much concerned with plurilateral or multilateral rules that constrain the exercise of power. It doesn't want that. It wants to exercise as much discretionary power as it can, bilaterally, uh, preferably bilaterally. So, and that's the essence of China's relationships with the countries that really interest it, is to keep it bilateral so that Beijing can control the power and the outcomes as much as possible and be as little constrained by overarching rules as possible. Are you saying that uh, China is basically the medicine what the West needs in a sense that we need to uni- unify and be a unified front uh, in order to, you know, go with China. Yes. It's just so big. Yeah, 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 yes. Um, now, different people read that uh, medicine from China in different ways. So one way of reading it would be to say, well, China as this rising mercantilist power shows how superior it is to uh, Western liberalism, uh, which is a kind of self-enfeeblement. So we need to become more like China. We need to become more mercantilist ourselves in order to combat China and defend the West. And I think that is precisely the wrong way of looking at it. It's the wrong answer. So going basically back in history. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a that's a recipe for self-harm. I think the right diagnosis or the better diagnosis is that, yes, China as a rising mercantilist power is a threat. One has to face it realistically. There are genuine national security concerns. Dealing with them might actually involve restricting trade and technology transfer and supply chains up to a point. But the the way to deal with that threat is precisely not to become more like China but rather the reverse. It's for countries of the West with like-minded allies outside the West to actually become more liberal and more open, uh, to strengthen the market economy, the rule of law, open societies, and liberal democracy, uh, to allow societies to to allow economies to innovate and societies to to flourish uh, while 
maintaining or increasing military strength. Um, and to do so in coalition formation. Um, John, the late John McCain, I think his great pet idea was an alliance of democracies. Um, he couldn't advance it in a time that was more complacent about China and more generally about the, the rise of authoritarianism around the world. Uh, maybe the time for that idea has come or should come. And uh, the liberal democracies of the world, those with market societies, should think of ways of institutionalizing their cooperation collectively. Um, and then dealing with China in terms of a delicate balancing act. In one sense, China has to be contained for the reasons I gave. But in another sense, it has to be engaged. Part of China has become much more open to the world. Uh, there is a substantial private sector in China. Uh, the links that have been built up, including people-to-people -people connections over the last 40 years are considerable. They are dense. We don't want to get rid of all that. Uh, and in a sense, accelerate China's retreat into a kind of uh, authoritarian command and control cocoon. Um, so that mix of containment and engagement, uh, keeping oneself open to China, while at the same time dealing with legitimate security threats, is it's a problematic mix and it's going to be a difficult balancing act and it may not be a balancing act that will succeed it may tip over into um, an extreme reaction of uh, uh, of, of um, closing oneself off from China uh, too much uh, or indeed it may end up being a naive reaction of not doing enough um, in the belief that the problem is not as serious as some people make out or, or simply because of the, the power of Chinese money around the world uh, and Chinese force around the world filling a, a vacuum left by Western weakness and uh, Western negligence it certainly sounds like that uh, we would need to be in rather enlightened and even ethical standpoint uh, in our uh, societies in the West, but looking, you know, what's happening in democracies around the world, uh, EU and, and, you know, US, and, you know, it's a lot of populism, Brexit happened, and, you know, we are, we are not very organized there's, there's a lot of government debt ac actually happening as well there's a lot of internal issues as well so that's quite a demanding task ahead of us yes i think um 
you know, the, the way I look at populism in the West, uh, I look at it in two broad ways. Firstly, you know, there are genuine cleavages in society that are going to be difficult to to deal with, to uh, to repair the social fabric, as it were. Um, some of them have to do have to do with modern economic and technological developments. Um, uh, people who are less educated and less skilled have done relatively worse than in previous eras. Uh, uh, they tend to be re regionally concentrated. And this, of course, spills over into, into politics and incites a backlash. And that backlash includes uh, an anti-migration, anti-globalization strain. Um, dealing with that is genuinely difficult. I think another way I look at it is, is very much through the lens of Hayek and Schumpeter. And when they were writing about the state of capitalism in the West in those dire times of the 1930s and 1940s, um, there, perhaps the chief reason that they found for the enfeeblement of capitalism and more broadly of liberal society in the West was a kind of intellectual uh, momentum from the late 19th century that was relentlessly anti-liberal, anti-market, anti-capitalist, and which gathered increasing force to the extent that you know, these forces, starting with the intellectuals, just hacked away at the liberal foundations of the West until those foundations were no more. Uh, and then, to put it extremely, Hitler's tanks or Japanese soldiers marched in. Um, I don't think it's nearly as dramatic as that today, but I think there are there are substantial constituencies, starting with the chattering classes, uh, who find all sorts of excuses to undermine the foundations of Western liberal society. Um, and often they don't, they don't face powerful principled opposition. Um, and so they come to they come to dominate the world of ideas. Um, and ideas eventually embody themselves in people who march through institutions and change outcomes. Um, so I, I think that's something to worry about as well. Um, it's Alan Bloom wrote a famous book in the 1980s called The Closing of the American Mind. Um, and what he wrote is an echo of what I just said, happening very much on the American campus. And that has 
if anything, got more extreme on the American campus since his day. Uh, it's happening on European campuses. Um, and um, so I, I think there's the danger of that closing of the Western mind, which then becomes dominated by a kind of rampant postmodern relativism, that that progressively enfeebles the West and makes it more vulnerable to threats from outside, not just from inside. You are educating young minds. You, you, you made a long career in the London Business School. Um, it just occurred to me that you know it, it takes decades, takes generations to people get into the power. So should we actually look back, I don't know, 80s, Uh, 90s maybe early 2000s and you know see what was the sentiment there because it tends to be that uh, when people are young they are open to new ideas and then they sort of fixate to the things what they learned so is that some kind of a, a signal or you know way of looking what's ahead of us how how were things in the campuses and what was happening in the You know, my impression from my student days in the 80s and then as a as a young lecturer in the 90s is that you know, outside certain pockets of study, most students became unideological. Um, so the kind of great debates that one had in previous decades uh, faded away and studying became much more instrumental to get a job and progress in one's career. Um, in that sense, I think university life became less interesting, less vital. Um And universities have, you know, in, in that fundamental sense of being a place for you know, discussing foundational ideas, universities have degenerated. Uh, you know, academics have become much, much more specialized. They've become much more limited. They have less of a broader culture. Um And become more like those you know, very narrow, instrumental students just chasing after a career. Um, I'm not knocking students being instrumental and chasing after a career. Uh, that, that's that, that's fine. Um, but uh, I suppose my general impression is that universities going by my experience before in London and my experience since then here in Singapore um, are not really the places these days where you know, great ideas germinate, get chewed over and propagated the way that 
might have happened once upon a time. Um, you get instrumental stuff coming out of universities. Um, and then you get you get these pockets in departments of English literature, sociology, cultural studies, what have you, where you do have world worldviews created revolving around all sorts of identity politics um, and a general sense of bashing Western civilization in quotation marks. Um, it's just much more fractured. Um, and yes, I mean, the graduates from these places uh, you know, go on to march through the institutions um, and ideas still matter in a sense. But you know, I, I don't get a sense looking back on my career. Uh, my teaching career started almost 30 years ago that you know I was I was shaping these minds you know, who would who would go out into the wide world and uh, shape outcomes that would correspond to what we discussed you know, in a seminar back in the early 1990s. Um, I don't think I ever got that that impression, and I think that's a sign of the times. Maybe it would have been different a few decades earlier. You mentioned that uh, you always feel like an outsider. Can you tell something about your past? And I think you've been having a bit of a self-discovery journey, and you put it uh, in book. Yes. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm half... Sri Lankan, half British. I uh, I was born in Colombo, the capital of Sri Lanka. Um, my mother comes from North Wales. My father is a Muslim from Sri Lanka. They met on a ship. My mother went out to Ceylon, as it was then called, to get married in 1961. Uh, then I came along in 1965, and my two younger brothers in in the years after. Um, and growing up in Sri Lanka, my childhood there was lasted until I was about 13, so until the late 70s. Um, I always felt half-half, uh, a half-insider, a half-outsider. I felt different from my father and my cousins and my uncles and aunts because I never felt completely Sri Lankan. I felt somewhat detached. And then when we went to live in the UK, uh, I certainly didn't feel completely British. I felt equally, if not more, detached. And that feeling of being a half-outsider, I've carried with me throughout my life, wherever I've been, wherever I've lived, um, usually looking in to what's happening around me from the outside, never really feeling a member of the club, a uh, full insider, as it were. And I'm comfortable with that feeling. It has its disadvantages, but it has its advantages. You know, taking a distance, looking at things maybe uh, with uh, clearer eyes, 
and a cooler frame of mind. Um, so I, I, I attribute a lot of that to Sri Lanka. Um, you, you mentioned the voyage of self-discovery. Well, um, I suppose going back maybe about 15 years, that there was a long period from the late 70s until 2006 when I went back to Sri Lanka very infrequently, uh, only for the odd holiday once every four or five years on average. Uh, so Sri Lanka wasn't a big part of my life you know, for about three decades. But I felt some kind of call to go back. Uh, I suppose from my early 40s. Uh, and then when I did start going back, and the first visit back was in 2006, which was also a few years after my father died, I felt a really powerful uh, pull back to Sri Lanka. So I, I resolved to uh, go back and travel around uh, to reconnect, in a sense, with my childhood years, which were mainly the 1970s, uh, and to really discover Sri Lanka afresh because I, you know, I'd seen a limited amount of it as a child and I wanted to see much more. So um, I started doing a lot of traveling around the island. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Colombo. And then when I moved to Singapore uh, almost nine years ago, it gave me the opportunity to do a lot more traveling and to spend a lot more time in Sri Lanka because it's only a three and a half hour flight away. And uh, early on, uh, once I started going back, I told myself I really want to write a book about Sri Lanka. But early on, I also told myself I don't want to write an academic book about Sri Lanka or a policy book about Sri Lanka. For one thing, I'm not a Sri Lankan expert in that sense. And also, I was getting a bit bored with academic, even policy writing. Uh, I wanted to write a writer's book on Sri Lanka, something... Um, uh, less constricted, uh, more free-ranging, something that could mix together lots of different subjects, history, current affairs, politics, religions, ethnicity, culture, uh, and my own story of growing up in Sri Lanka, of being absent, and then, then coming back. So, and of course, once I resolved to write about Sri Lanka, it meant that when I went back and went traveling, I did so much more seriously because I had a purpose. Uh, I knew I would have to take lots of notes, talk to people, uh, read up a lot, reflect, and then put pen to paper and eventually come up with a book. Uh, and so after about a decade of traveling and really very difficult writing, uh, the book came together and uh, was published uh, late last year. Um, so it's it's labeled a travel memoir, Return to Sri Lanka, Travels in a Paradoxical Island, uh, where I try to make sense of all of the different facets I mentioned. Um, and... Uh, 
apart from being a voyage of discovery, I discovered a lot of Sri Lanka and of Sri Lankans in the process. It also ended up being a kind of self-discovery. The best kind of travel is when you discover parts of yourself that were perhaps unknown or unfamiliar to you, you know, while you're on the road, as, as it were. Um, there was a lot of that as well. Uh, I mean, I discovered a new form of writing. I took to writing more like a writer, a travel writer, than as a professor or a policy wonk. Um, I... Um, I suppose I discovered a new love for Sri Lanka that I didn't realize I had before, um, a new connection with it. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, I discovered Buddhism and meditation along the way. Um, I mean, that was a kind of parallel journey, Vipassana meditation in particular. Um, and, of course, Vipassana's foundation is in original or early Buddhism. Uh, and I suppose it made a big difference in that this, this kind of spiritual journey happened alongside my travels in Sri Lanka over the last decade. And of course, Sri Lanka is predominantly a Buddhist country. The main ethnicity, the Sinhalese, are over 70% of the population and the overwhelming majority of them are Buddhists. So there's a Sinhala Buddhist culture in Sri Lanka that is now 2,300 plus years old uh, and there are signs of it everywhere. Uh, so that, that gave my inward journey uh, an outward connection expression in a way um, that's how I would uh, describe it how has the reception been for the book inside of uh, the country and also for the you know outside um, it's still relatively early days uh, and this pandemic has thrown a bit of a spanner in the works because of course I can't travel to book festivals and do traditional face-to-face -face book talks um, so far, the reception has been very good in Sri Lanka. I had my my book launch in Colombo just before the world went into lockdown. This was in late February. Um, and uh, I think the, the main reception for the book so far has been from Sri Lankans, in Sri Lanka and Sri Lankans in the diaspora around the world, and also from foreigners who have some sort of connection with Sri Lanka. Uh, so I've had, I think, a, 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 what I would consider a very favorable response from these sets of people. Um, and what I think has been particularly interesting and gratifying for me is that different people have picked up on different aspects of the book, different passages in the book that resonate with their lives in some form or other. So it could be traveling to back or beyond places 
it could be you know growing up half half which we talked about earlier um it could be the buddhist dimension um it could be living as a sri lankan abroad uh and wondering about one's relationship to the country of one's birth or one's ancestry growing up with multiple identities um sri lankan politics uh all of the all of the above um uh i would like of course the i suppose the the people who are going to read the book mostly will have a connection to or some kind of interest in sri lanka um uh i'd like it to reach a wider audience uh you know to people who don't necessarily have a strong connection with sri lanka uh it's a travel book and a memoir and i think there are some themes to do with travel to do with uh, childhood and adult reconnection with childhood um to do with so religion culture ethnicity more broadly those themes I, i i do touch on in the book i mean those are themes that travel well beyond sri lanka so i i hope there are some potential readers out there who might latch on to those themes and pick up the book um but ultimately i hope you know it's it is a book about sri lanka and um one reason why i would like it to be read uh yon sri lanka is to get people so far not acquainted or not well acquainted with sri lanka acquainted with it and come to sri lanka and uh discover it uh because it is um uh i it's it's a stunningly beautiful country um i don't want to repeat all the tourist clichés about sri lanka uh but the one thing i would say is that i don't know anywhere else on earth of comparable size that is as sort of stunningly diverse in its landscapes its uh people its coastlines its uh biodiversity uh as is sri lanka um and you see most of that in a blaze of tropical color different shades of tropical color uh and you don't have to travel long distances from one place with a particular combination of landscape animals plants and people to another place a few hours drive away with a very different look um and people are generally very very welcoming um sri lanka reminds me a little bit of ireland uh most people are just very warm and welcoming to the foreigner um and makes him or her feel feel very uh, very welcome uh but you know as i said i you know i don't want to give a tourist advertisement for sri lanka it's um it has many dark sides it's it's not 
the tropical paradise. Uh, and what makes it fascinating, in addition to what I've already mentioned, is that it has layers upon layers of complications and paradoxes. And one thing I tried to do in the journeys and in the book was to tease out some of those paradoxes. What is your favorite word? Well, since we were talking so much about Sri Lanka, my favorite word is serendipity. Serendipity comes from the the name the Arabs, ancient Arab traders gave to Sri Lanka, probably going back 1,500 to 2,000 years ago, serendip. Uh, serendip is what they called ancient Lanka. And uh, it was an English writer and essayist, Horace Walpole, who saw that word and who converted it into serendipity. And the Oxford Dictionary's definition of serendipity, I'm paraphrasing here, is something like uh, chancing, upon, chancing upon something, having an encounter that is happy and beneficial. Something spontaneous, something that's not planned, with a happy and beneficial outcome. That's serendipity. I think that's my favorite word. What is your least favorite word? Like. L-I-K-E. I hear it far too often as a filler in a sentence, um, particularly in the United States, where it's become an epidemic. Uh, but it's traveled from the United States around, around the world. Uh, it dominates in international schools in places like Singapore, where you have big expat bubbles. Everything is like, 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 and if it's not a like, it's a you know. So like is my least favorite word. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I think the answer I would give now is uh, silence, and preferably silence in nature, in a natural environment, far away from the madding crowd. Uh, I would have given a different answer in previous decades, but the more meditation I've done, uh, the more I've thought about spiritual questions, um, the more I appreciate silence. In other words, true quiet, uh, which gives one space to to think, uh, to move, to experience. Um, so I, I think that's what I probably treasure most of all, those moments, and particularly those moments uh, in a remote rural uh, setting. What turns you off? Uh, relentless self-promotion. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> have you been doing that lately? <laughs> uh, I hope not. I hope not. Uh, 
I don't think I've been ever I've ever been a relentless self promoter, but I have in the past been a self promoter. I mean, I still am a self promoter. For example, I want my book to be read by as many people as possible, given the effort I put into writing it. That's a form of self promotion. But I think one of the um, traits of modern society, exacerbated by the internet and social media is the compulsion to constantly promote oneself in all sorts of ways. And um, I just find it sort of shallow, tacky, and character deforming. <laughs> um, and I see the products of it all around. Um, and I try to check myself <laughs> if I find myself going too far in that direction. Ultimately, it's just very boring. What is your favorite curse word? Bugger. (laughs) Uh, This is very culture-bound. The British, the English, of course, it's, it's, it's a rather muted curse word. Uh, unlike someone could mention. Um, But if you're annoyed with something, if you're of a certain generation in Britain, you might say bugger. Just as you do still, even with younger generations in some of the old British colonies, now independent, like Sri Lanka. So I, I grew up with hearing that word around me bugger, not meant in any sense sexually, but just as a form of annoyance, sometimes even as a way of teasing someone or as a kind of term of endearment, you know, you bugger. Um, But if you take it out of that specific cultural context, of course, it can be misread (laughs) and lead to unfortunate consequences. What sound or noise do you love? Um, I've been um, spending a bit of time in Japan in the last, just in the last um, three to three and a half years. I've been to Kyoto five times in three and a half years. My first visit was just three and a half years ago. Kyoto has rapidly become perhaps my favorite city in the world. Um, I would love to live in Kyoto and travel around Japan for six months to a year at some stage, but live in Kyoto. And Kyoto, of course, was capital of Japan for a thousand years. Um, It's very much old Japan, classical Japan, and it's full of temples and temple gardens. And um, I've visited many. Uh, My favorites being the, the Zen temples of Tokyo, I think I visited about 30. Uh, (laughs) I have a list. (laughs) In some of these exquisite temple gardens, you find uh, water running down a small stream or sometimes just dripping from a perfectly placed leaf off a fountain going plop, plop. So hearing the sound of water in that kind of setting 
is um, one of my ideas of heaven. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, everybody talking or shouting at the same time with no one listening. Um, now that's familiar from Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lankans, indeed a lot of South Asians, are incessant talkers. They love to talk all the time. They're not that great at listening. And they love to talk and interrupt while other people are talking at the same time. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, a global vagabond is what I would like to be as an alternative professional. Uh, someone just wandering around the world um, uh, with plenty of time on his on his hands. What profession would you not like to do? A full-time academic churning out useless publications that hardly anybody reads. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? Uh, I think I would choose a you know a charitable organization or a social enterprise in Sri Lanka today. Thank you, Rosine. This has been trip around the world in many levels. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you very much, Petri, for asking those questions and uh, yes, <laughs> piloting that trip around around our virtual world. <laughs>